please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7. As you turn there, just a reminder that this, as uh, Ben already mentioned this evening, we'll be having a worship service at Bethany Baptist Church, and encourage you to come and join that. Also, for those of you who are uh, new or who have a desire to become members of Bethany Community Church, I uh, encourage you next Sunday, October, Next October the 3rd, and I believe it's next, next Sunday, what's today? Yes, our next Sunday, uh, during the Sunday School Hour, we're offering Bethany 101. It's actually the next two Sundays we'll be offering Bethany 101. So if you'd like to become a member, or if you just want to find out more about our church, I encourage you to come to those classes. We'll be meeting in, in this room, just here at the front, during the Sunday School Hour, 9 o'clock, uh, next Sunday and the following Sunday. Well, uh, please uh, stand with me as we look at Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 17 together. Verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went up to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You may be seated. You be encouraged by God's word this morning. Let's pray. And Father, we recognize your love for us this morning. We recognize your love for us, your care for us, your concern for us, even in the midst of, of tragedy. And I pray that you would strengthen our hearts this morning as we consider your son Jesus. And how he does offer all that we could ever hope for. That all the other things of this world could pass away as long as we had your son Jesus. We would be satisfied. And we pray this in his name for your glory. Amen. Death is a terrible. Death is a vivid reminder that we live in a fallen world. A world in which the curse of sin is deeply and profoundly felt. The John, uh, Joseph and Mary Lou Bailey, uh, two individuals who have felt the sorrow of sin's curse, the tragedy of being separated by death from someone whom you love very deeply. Joseph and Mary Lou Bailey lost three sons. One at 18 days after a surgery, another boy at five years old due to leukemia, and another son at 18 years of age after a skiing accident. I want you to listen to what Joseph Bailey wrote as he contemplated the, the death of a child. It's rel very relevant as this morning we're looking at a text in which a, a woman loses her child, her son, her only son. This is what Joseph Bailey writes as he's talking about how unnatural it is for a parent to have to bury their own child. He says this, 
He says in Carl Jung's words, the death of a child is like a period placed before the end of the sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun at all. We expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it comes as no surprise. But the child, the youth, life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonder, its potential. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the youth. In a way that is different from any other human relationship, a child is bone of his parents' bone, the flesh of their flesh. And when a child dies, part of the parents is buried. Bailey writes, I met a man who was in his 70s. And during our first 10 minutes together, he brought the faded photograph of a child out of his wallet, his child who had died almost 50 years ago. Death is terrible. It's a tragic reminder of the curse of sin in this world. And death, as many of you know, is not something that one simply gets over. The effects of sin and the effects of of the curse of sin and and death are felt for, for months and years and decades and over a lifetime. This week, as I've been preparing to to preach on this passage, and even weeks coming up, as I knew this passage, we would be dealing with it, I've been thinking about many of you. I know that many of you have experienced the pain of being separated from someone whom you love very deeply due to their death. And I've thought about you. I know many of you, I've, I've, I've wept with some of you. I've prayed for you this week as we've been, as I've been thinking about this text and the separation that you've felt. I know that there are many of you who have felt this pain as well, that, that I have no idea about the pain you've gone through. Perhaps there have been miscarriages, or, or perhaps you lost someone whom you love very deeply, and, and it's, it's been years ago, long before I even met you, or maybe you're here this morning and, and I don't even know you, no one else here knows you, and, yet, and you, you have a, a profound grief that you still feel as you consider the separation that's taken place in your life because of someone whom you love very dearly leaving this earth. The truth is that every single person in this room, unless the Lord returns first, is going to, if they haven't already, here's a cheerful thought, optimist of the year award right here, is going to feel the effects of death. Either you're going to have someone very close to you, whom you love, separated from you because of death, or you are going to die, causing pain to those around you. Or, again, cheerful thought, perhaps both. Death is an ever-present reality. The curse of sin and death is felt by all. It is a fearsome foe. Here in Luke chapter 7, as we're looking at verses 11 through 17, I want you to kind of remember the context of Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, there's a question that's being asked again and again. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're going to see it asked very uh, blatantly next week and in the following weeks. We've seen it asked implicitly last week. We've seen some answers about who Jesus is. There have been uh, discussions of his authority. We're going to continue to talk about who Jesus is and see different answers to this question. Here in verse 11 through through 17, we see that Jesus is one with unique authority. In fact, authority that can conquer the worst foe that we face. 
this morning as we look at this text, what I hope that you realize is that, yes, death is terrible, death is tragic, and yet even in death, Christ is triumphant. Death is a terrible, tragic event, and yet even in death, we have a triumphant Christ. That's what I hope that you get as you look at verses 11 through 17. As we look at this text, we're going to kind of look at it in in four different sections or four different movements as we consider the triumph of Christ even under the sorrow of sin and sin's curse in death. Let's look first at verses 11 through 12, first of all looking at the sorrow of sin. Verse 11 says this, Soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, kind of see the picture here that Luke is painting as he sets this setting. We have Jesus, and he's just left Capernaum, or recently left Capernaum. He's come to Nain. It's a city about 18 miles away. It's about six miles from Nazareth. Jesus is preparing to enter the city of Nain. It's a small city. He co- he's coming to the gate, and with Jesus, of course, are his disciples, those people who would consider themselves followers of Jesus. They look to Jesus as their rabbi, as their teacher. They're trying to emulate the conduct of Jesus. They're with Jesus as he prepares to enter Nain. But also with Jesus, Luke tells us, is a a great crowd. And these are people who don't necessarily consider themselves followers of Jesus, but they're kind of interested in Jesus and his teaching and want to kind of see what's going to happen next. Remember, reports about Jesus have been going out, and so they want to kind of follow this Jesus guy and see what's going to happen. In our culture, we have the the paparazzi, right? We have this celebrity culture. And so in our culture, what the paparazzi and other celebrities do is is they take a person who's famous and they take the, or infamous, or at least have some sort of notoriety, and they take the mundane events of their life and give them some sort of newsworthy status, right? So-and-so had an argument with so-and-so else uh, tonight at 7. They take the mundane and they try to make it newsworthy. I must, have, I must have seen 18 different news blurbs about Lindsay Lohan going to jail this week, okay? I don't need to know that. People go to jail every day. It's mundane. It's every day. It's commonplace. It's the exact opposite in this situation. Jesus is an extraordinary figure. And Jesus takes the extraordinary, he's God incarnate, the things he says are incredible, the things that he's doing are amazing. He takes the, mon- the extraordinary and they become commonplace every day. And so this great crowd is following Jesus to see what's going to happen next. That's on one side of this gate in Nain. So Jesus, disciples, great crowd going, what's going to happen next? Now, At the beginning of the story, on the other side of this gate, coming out of the city, is a funeral procession. You need to understand a little bit about funerals and burial customs in first century Israel. What would take place is this. When a person would pass away, their loved ones would close their eyes, close the eyes of the deceased. They would tear their own clothing. They would anoint the body. They would wrap it in cloths. They would then place the body on a a plank, a wooden plank, uh, calls here a a beer, B-I-E-R. And they would place the body on this plank, and then usually the same day that this person passed away, they would take the body out 
through the town, and as people saw this procession going through the town, other people would join in the funeral procession, and they would leave the town, and they would go out in some caves or some similar type structures and, and bury the body. According to, to Jewish custom, it was considered uh, very important for a community, especially in a smaller community, for the, the whole community to participate, or as many as could participate, to, to participate in this procession. In fact, uh, one ancient source says uh, you needed at least two flute players and a woman crying to have a proper funeral procession. And we're going to see in this story that there's far more than that in, in this procession as it leaves the city. Luke uh, draws our attention to a couple things here. So there's Jesus, there's his disciples, there's this great crowd. Then on the other side of the gate, exiting the city, it says in verse 12, there's a man who had died being carried out. And the first thing he tells us about this man who's died, his funeral procession, leaving the city, the first thing he tells about, about this man is that he's an only son. This funeral procession is particularly tragic, first of all, because it involves an only son, perhaps an only child. In Jeremiah 6, 26, Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes this about mourning. He says, mourn as if you were mourning for an only son. Acts 8.10, God says, I'm going to make it like the mourning for an only son. There's something particularly tragic about losing an only child. And that's one reason this funeral procession is particularly solemn. But secondly, Luke tells us, not only is he, he the only son of his mother, this woman is a widow. Now, this woman has lost her husband. She's lost the provision that her husband would provide for her, and now, as her son is reaching that age in which he would be able to provide for her, now she's lost him as well. You see the tragic circumstances that she's in. Remember the story of Naomi in the, in the book of Ruth. As she loses her husband and she loses her sons. She stands as a woman destitute, and it's Ruth and her faithfulness to Naomi that, begin, that God uses to begin to provide for her. In Acts, remember Acts chapter 6, uh, Paul, or uh, the, the deacons in, in Acts chapter 6 are assigned with the task of helping to provide for the widows in the community. A widow who's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, she's lost the means of support that she has within a community, is a person to be pitied. First Timothy, Paul talks about instructions for providing for widows in a community, the community of faith. So this procession, as it makes its way through the small town of Nain, the people see who's passed away. They see this widow who's just lost her son leading the funeral procession as it leaves the city. And I'm sure there's a certain amount of pity that the people in the community had on her. They recognize the great tragedy that's occurred. And so this great crowd comes with her. And she exits the gate. The funeral procession is coming with her. And there's Jesus, his disciples, great crowd, the woman, the woman, this great crowd, the bearers carrying her dead son's body are leaving out the gate, and it's these two crowds meeting together. And here's the ironic part, the great irony of the story. There's this woman leaving the city, and she's surrounded by people. And yet, even though she's surrounded by a great crowd, she is a woman who is very much alone. She is a woman who is alone and that she has no one to provide for her and care for her now. She's dependent upon the community and their goodness. And she's also a woman who is very much alone in her grief at this moment. 
No one there, with the possible exception of Jesus, has the same sense of the tragic nature of what has occurred. She is alone in her grief and in her sorrow, even though she's surrounded by crowds. Brothers and sisters, that's the reality of sin's curse in our world. This woman stands here alone, and yet, at the same time, there are millions and millions of women who have experienced similar circumstances, who have had to bury their own children. There are terrible circumstances that take place daily in our world. Children are orphaned daily in our world. Genocides have taken place throughout the history of our world. Millions of people have died through genocide. People have died in terrible, tragic circumstances through natural disasters. Children are sold daily in, in, uh, into slavery. Terrible things happen in this world, and this woman is one of those millions and billions of stories. That's the sorrow of sin. How do you cope with that? How do you comprehend the enormity of how sorrowful this world is because of the curse of sin, the effects of sin? And I, when I say the effects of sin, I'm not saying that this woman's sin led to, led to the circumstances she's, she's in. I'm just saying this, the state of this kingdom, that the world is not the way that it, it should be if things were right and good. How do you cope with that? How do you cope with the sorrow of death that takes place daily throughout the world? It's hard. I was reading, uh, or actually I was, I was uh, watching some uh, movie trailers this, this past month. I was, I was thinking about this text, and I thought about how we, how we try to cope with death. And one of the ways that we cope with death is we, we try to find some sort of entertainment value in it, right? be it the, the shoot 'em up movie or, or be it movies that deal with the, with the, the world beyond our world. Uh, there are two movies that came out recently or, or about to come out or something. One's called A Charlie St. Cloud, and it's about a, a, a boy who plays baseball with his dead brother, and there's this, this connection that he has with this, this brother who's gone on. I saw a trailer for another movie call, coming out called Hereafter, and it's about this, this man who has the ability to connect people like a psychic or something to connect them with the relatives who've, who've gone on. That's one way we try to cope with, with death is we, we make stories about it, we entertain ourselves, and we kind of contemplate what the hereafter might be like. Another way that we, we cope with it is we, we get philosophical about death and life. I was reading this past week uh, about a philosopher named Martin Heidegger, and Martin Heidegger's uh, d deal was he wanted to try to contemplate nothingness, and he said, you know, I think sometimes we try to focus on something when really we should be focusing on nothing. Nothing is not less than something. Something is more than something. Nothing is more than something. And anyway, bottom line, what he said is, in order to really contemplate nothing, what you need to do is, is contemplate that feeling you have as you contemplate your own death. That sense of angst that you feel as you contemplate your own death gives you a, a sense of what nothing ultimately is, and that's one way to kind of cope with the enormity of death and suffering and the reality of death in this world is to, to get philosophical and say things that don't make that much sense, right? Another way is to just deny evil and death and suffering. The Christian scientists do this. A Buddhism does this. It's kind of like my children as we're playing hide-and-go-seek, my, my youngest daughter. 
Dad, uh, can you see me now? I can't, I can't see you, Daddy. Just deny that it even exists. Right? None of those are very tenable options, though. Here's the application for us as we look at verses 11 and 12 and we see this tragic event. The application for us is this. Uh, you will encounter the terrible effects of sin in this world. It's inevitable. You will encounter the terrible effects of, of sin in this world, particularly the effects of sin as it comes to death. You, the people you love, you need to prepare for it. It's not unique to you, but what it is, it's a profound reminder that things in this world are off. God's perfect kingdom has not been established yet, and right now we live in the sorrow of this present age. That's what we see in verses 11 and 12 as this procession leaves the city Jesus encounters it, and he sees the sorrow of sin's curse. Let's look next at verse 13, this second movement of the story. We see first the sorrow of sin. Now we see the compassion of Christ. Verse 13 says that the Lord saw her. Now remember, she's surrounded by this great crowd. There's all these people around her. There's these people mourning and wailing there's the people that are carrying the beer that's holding her son and jesus sees the woman the widow and luke tells us he sees the widow and it says when he saw her the lord had compassion on her that word compassion means to be stirred up from within oneself like in one's very belly to be moved jesus sees this widow he understands her plight and his response is one of compassion to feel concern for the state in which she's in and jesus says as he feels this compassion says to her do not weep why did jesus have such compassion for her well a couple of reasons first of all i believe he had compassion for her just as a human being jesus christ is fully man First of all, he's fully God and fully man. But first of all, he's fully man. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2.17 that, that Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. This is Hebrews 2.17. And then verse 18 says, he himself has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. And so Jesus, first of all, as he encounters this scene, feels compassion for her as a human being, understanding the realities of the suffering of life, the sorrow of sin. He sees that, and Christ has compassion as a, as a human being, as, as fully man. But Jesus also has compassion on her as fully God. He has the compassion of God. And understand this, as you think about God and the widow, God has a special concern and passion for the widow. In fact, if you would, uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Something very interesting happens in the book of Ruth. You have the first five books of the Bible, then you have Joshua, then you have Judges, and then you have the book of Ruth. And we'll look at the beginning of Ruth and its end. We call the book of Ruth, Ruth, but you could also perhaps call it the book of Naomi, it tells not just Ruth's story, but Ruth's story intertwined with Naomi's story. Ruth chapter 1 tells us that in the days when the judges ruled the land, there was a famine. Okay, And throughout the 
I'd like us to go through the book of Ruth eventually someday. Uh, obviously not this morning, but sometime I'd like us to spend some time. As you go through the book of Ruth, you find that famine is a common theme throughout the book of Ruth, the lack of food. There's this famine, and a man in Bethlehem leaves because of the famine. He goes to Moab. He goes with his wife, Naomi. He goes with his two sons. Uh, the two sons marry, but verse 3 tells us, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And the two sons took Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Verse 5, and both Melon and Chilon, the sons died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The story of Ruth is the story of this woman, this Jewish woman, this Israelite woman who has no provision for her. She's in a foreign land, no husband, no sons to care for her. And throughout the book of Ruth, we see God's covenant faithfulness to Ruth, uh, to Naomi and Ruth. And then you come to the end of the book of Ruth and turn to the very end, and you come to verse 13 of Ruth 4. Boaz marries Ruth, if you know the story. Then the women said, not to Ruth, but they said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, have, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And so here we have in the story of Ruth a story of God's covenant faithfulness to the widow. God loves and has compassion and cares for the widow. It is a truth that we see throughout Scripture. Psalm 68.5, in Psalm 68.5, the psalmist says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God is going to be the one who cares for and protects those whose husbands have passed away. Psalm 146, verse 9, in Psalm 146, verse 9, it says, The Lord watches over the foreigner, the sojourner, and he's the one who upholds the widow and the fatherless. Isaiah Isaiah tells the people to learn to do good, tells them to defend the widow, the, their cause, plead for their cause. And so here's the picture again. Jesus, disciples, great crowd, woman, people carrying her dead son, great crowd. Jesus, as a human being, sees this woman leading a funeral procession and feels compassion for her and sorrow for her. But as God, he also feels compassion and sorrow for her. Christ is a compassionate God. God is a compassionate God who cares for and provides for those who cannot provide for themselves. He tells her not to weep. Here's the application as we consider the compassion of Christ. You and I are not alone in our sorrow. You and I are not alone in our sorrow. And so often, as we deal with grief, we deal with the reality of the sorrow of sin in this world, our tendency is to take on the sorrow for ourselves and to, and to, to try to, to be alone in our grief. Eugene Peterson wrote in a book, as he's dealing with the book of Lamentations, he says, 
You know, the book of Lamentations in Scripture is like a funeral service for the death of a city. As he's talking about Lamentations, he talks about how those who are in the community of faith should come to the book of Lamentations and, and see how Jeremiah, as he writes the book of Lamentations, deals with sorrow and how he comes alongside other people and encourages them to, to have a communal understanding of grief. He says the biblical revelation never eliminates suffering. It, it shows, rather, God entering into the life of suffering humanity, accepting and sharing the suffering. That's what Christ does here, right? As he encounters this woman, and again, remember this woman is one of millions of billions of people who have experienced suffering in their lives, and Christ has compassion for her. Now, in our situation, you and I are to be Christ ones in the communities and in the spheres in which he's placed us. You and I are to emulate the compassion of Christ as he puts us in the lives of people who are grieving. And if we are the people grieving, there is an expectation that we are to turn to other believers, other people who love Christ, and gain from their ability to share in our sufferings. Grief is to be communal. Peterson goes on. He talks about how there's a temptation for us to try to fix suffering. You know, sometimes I get the phone call from people and they say, hey, I have a so-and-so, a friend who's, whose mother just passed away. Uh, what do I need to say? You know, like as if there's some sort of magic phrase. And I just need to know, the, that, what's that magic phrase that pastors say to stop people from feeling sad? I can't tell you. There is none, right? There is none. We're called to come alongside of people and not to take away their suffering, but to share in it. He writes, Peterson writes, one of the strategies of pastoral work, and really I'd say of the work of the body, is to enter into private grief and make a shared event of it. The biblical way to deal with suffering is to transfer what is something individual into something corporate. He goes on and he's t he says in the story of the case of Jerusalem's fall, no single person's sin produced the suffering that led to Jerusalem's fall, and no single person should have to mourn Jerusalem's fall alone. Response to suffering is to be a function of the congregation, of the community of faith coming together. And I believe he's absolutely right. So we see the, the sorrow of sin. You're going to encounter the reality of sin, the effects of sin in your life. Terrible things are going to happen to you. Terrible things are going to happen to the people around you. We live under sin's curse. It's a reality. We see here the compassion of Christ as he sees the reality of this suffering. He feels compassion as a human being. He feels compassion as God. And next, we see the greatness of God in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says that Jesus came up and he, he touched the beer. So there's this procession that, that's, that's making its way outside the gate. Jesus walks up. He touches this plank upon which the dead man is, is, is lying. And the bears stood still, indicating Jesus' authority to stop this whole funeral procession. There's two crowds, Jesus' crowd, the widow's crowd. Jesus stops everything. Now everything's, everyone's attention is focused on Jesus. Jesus then says these words. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. 
Can I be honest with you? This is one of the hardest parts of the story for me, right? Because what happens? It says that the young man arises and, and he begins to, to, to sit up and he speaks. Here's this man. He's young. He's at the, 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 the point in his life where he's going to be able to start providing for his mom and, and, and caring for this widow. And, and uh, his life is cut short. And you know, if you've ever been in a funeral of a young person, you know that feeling of their life has been cut short. And I wonder, what if, what if? What if, if you've, uh, like me, you've known people who have died at very young ages, and as the years go on, you still wonder, what if, what if they were still alive? What if they were still alive? Five years ago, I stood over the, the coffin of my young cousin. He'd be 24 today, or, or this, this, uh, ne- this year, he'd be 24. And even this week, I've been wondering, what if he was still alive? What would he still be experiencing? In this situation, that happens. A person in their funeral procession comes back to life, is restored to his mother. It says Jesus gave him back to his mother, and now he lives out the what if. Most likely, he outlives his mother. The mother who led his funeral procession, now he probably leads her funeral procession years later. That's remarkable to think about. And right now, here and now, in this kingdom where things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, it's somewhat hard because we haven't experienced the fullness and the greatness of God's power over death yet. This past uh, week, I saw a news story from uh, the ABC News affiliate in, in Dallas. They told the story, uh, perhaps some of you have, have seen it, about this, this woman whose teenage daughter died. And they donated her organs, and then they began to, to find out about some of the people who had received the organs of this, this woman, who had pa- this young girl who had passed away. And one of the people who had received her, her uh, organs was a woman who had received her heart, a 41-year-old woman there in Texas. And the mom of the girl who passed away was able to meet the woman who received her daughter's heart. And she was able to listen to her daughter's heart beating in this woman. It's pretty incredible, right? It's pretty great what they're able to do there. And this, out of tragedy came triumph. The greatness of God in death is far more profound. God doesn't just take something not good, kind of bad, tragic, and, and kind of make some good stuff out of it. The greatness of God in death is demonstrated in a far deeper way. Let me tell you what I mean. Let me tell you several ways that the greatness of God is demonstrated in death. We've been provided with a Savior who can conquer death. What are some, some applications of that? First of all, Jesus is great because of his power over death. He's great here. He demonstrates his greatness. And when I say the greatness of God, I'm talking about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all demonstrating their greatness over death. Jesus is great because of his power over death. Here initially, in this moment, he demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his greatness. But even in this situation, think about this. This young man is brought back to life. And imagine if you're, a, imagine you're, you're there, you're in the town of Nain, you're a six-year-old kid. 
and you see this funeral procession going through the street, and, and you participate in it, and then you're there at the gate, and you see the dead guy get up. <laughs> and, he, and he talks, and he gets up. He's restored to his mom. He comes, and he, you spend time with him over the next 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years. Then he dies again. You see this fr- funeral procession going down the street. You're 56, 60 years old. You see the funeral procession going down the street. You say, who is that? Oh, that's that guy that died 50 years ago. And you go through his funeral procession again. Jesus is demonstrating his greatness over death here. But secondly, there's something even more profound about his victory over death. It's great because of his ultimate deliverance over all the power of death. It's great because of his ultimate deliverance over all the power of death. And it's also another reason that the greatness of God is demonstrated here is because of the sacrifice that Jesus will make in order to finally conquer death. Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah writes the words of the Lord, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, Listen to this, as one mourns for an only child. Jesus, Scripture tells us, is the only begotten Son of God. The greatness of God is demonstrated in Jesus' victory over death, one, because of his ability over death in this situation, but also because he is the one who sacrificed himself in order to bring about the ultimate victory over death through the cross. It's also great, as we already mentioned, because of the ultimate deliverance he promises from death. In fact, if you'd like, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we read these words about the resurrection. Paul says, I I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians verse 50. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body, this fleshly body, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ we live in a sinful world, a world in which millions of people, billions of people have experienced the pain of death, and yet Christ's victory over death is not just temporary. Christ's victory over death is ultimate and triumphant so that even through the tragedy, Christ is triumphant. That's the greatness of God demonstrated in this story. come next then and finally to the confession of the crowd in verses 16 and 17 
verse 16, fear sees them all. As now we see why all those crowds are there. There's the, the great crowds that are with Jesus, the great crowds that's with the widow. Why were all those people there? Well, God sovereignly placed them there so they could witness this event. And as they see the greatness of God, there's a confession of the crowd. They're terrified. There's fear. And that's often a response we see of, of people to the greatness of God demonstrated in Jesus' life. And it says they glorified God, and they say these two things. First of all, I say, a great prophet has arisen among us. And they understand that Jesus has this amazing ministry. In fact, that phrase where it says in verse 15 that Jesus gave him to his mother, that's actually a similar phrase that we see in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah restores the widow's son to his mother. They recognize that here's this guy that has a ministry that's as profound as the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and they're wondering what in the world is going on here. They're glorifying God, and then they also say, secondly, God has visited his people. And that's a phrase you also see throughout the Old Testament as God's blessings, sometimes his judgments, but often God's blessings come upon his people. It said God visited his people. They recognize as this dead man sits up from his funeral plank and begins to talk and goes back to his mom and live his life, God has visited his people. There's a great prophet. Something profound is taking place. And then this report, verse 17, tells us about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, what's the application there for us? Well, you and I have to decide how we're going to respond to the greatness of God. You and I have to decide how we're going to respond to the greatness of God. God, through Jesus Christ, has conquered death. And now eternal life is, is offered, complete victory over the, the curse of sin. The curse of sin demonstrated not just in death, but in all aspects of our life. Freedom from the curse of sin is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, one comes recognizing that the stain of sin exists not just out there among the people committing genocide, not just out there in the, the cancers of the world and the natural disasters that demonstrate the reality of a fallen world, but the reality of the fallen world we recognize is found in my own heart. We come to God recognizing that Jesus Christ offers us salvation from our own sin. And recognizing that there's nothing that we can do on our own to merit God's forgiveness, to merit God's salvation, and through faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of what he did on the cross, we come to God and ask for his forgiveness, beseeching ourselves of his mercy. That's the confession that scripture requires from us. That's the good news of Christ. Death struck me most profoundly for the first time uh, my, my junior year of high school. My junior year of high school, uh, was home in the evening and my mom was on the phone and she got off very quickly and she called all the kids into the living room. We sat down and just very simply she first words out of her mouth, she said, Mark Hensley is dead. The Hensleys were, our, to call them family friends is almost an insult. They're the, the people that our, our family is, my parents especially, are, are closest to. They, and this little boy was, was 10 years old, my brother's best friend. I can remember going down and 
spending time with the family at the funeral and beyond. And I remember looking especially at, at Mark's dad, Uncle Steve, and, and looking at his face and, and seeing just a shell of a man and understanding kind of the first time a little bit about the tragedy of death. And yet even in that circumstance, I saw the triumph of God. I want to read two, two texts to you as we come to a conclusion here. The first is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read this, verse 13, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's almost like we're not going to see Jesus and be reunited with Jesus before the people who have already passed away. Their, their resurrection is the really cool thing. We're not an afterthought, but we're not quite as cool. goes on and he says, For this, verse 15, we declare to you by a word from the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Tragedy. These people in Thessalonica had lost loved ones. And Paul says, no, 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 it's terrible, yes. Right now we're in a state, history of our world, where it's terrible and it's tragic. But Christ is triumphant. In fact, the last passage I want to read, Revelation chapter 5. What was the most tragic death of all of human history? Of all the people who've ever been born and died, who was least deserving of death? It's Jesus, right? And in this most tragic of all deaths, we see the glory of God demonstrated most profoundly. And if in the greatest tragedy, we see the greatest triumph, how much more in our lives, as we encounter tragedy, will we see God work triumph for the glory of God through Jesus Christ? Here's what we read in Revelation chapter 5, and and this is the thought that I want us to conclude with. It's John says, I looked, this is verse 11, and I, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who died, who experienced tragedy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. That's the coming kingdom. That's the kingdom that Jesus begins to inaugurate here on his earthly ministry that we're encountering in Luke chapter 7. 
We live in a world that is stained with sorrow because of sin. But we have a compassionate Christ who calls us to be compassionate to those around us. And even in death, Christ is triumphant. And he will be glorified, praise God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we think of the pain that exists in our world today. We think of the terrible circumstances that many whom we love have found themselves in. And we know that you are not a a God who is unmindful of those things, and we beseech your mercy, we beseech your grace. We pray, first of all, for encouraged hearts. We pray for restored spirits, and we pray that through these circumstances, as we recognize that you are a compassionate God, that that your Son is the triumphant Christ, that we would be comforted, and in our grief we would glorify you. Keep us from sin, keep us from stumbling, and for those who have not experienced the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray for them. I pray that you would speak through, through your word to their souls, and they would respond in repentance and faith toward you. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.